Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, but I'm glad to be back on the air, and I'm looking forward to discussing another segment to Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. So in this uh, segment, we're going to uh, discuss um, not only so much about Adams and Jefferson, but as we have already uh, learned from a previous podcast about whom their uh, vice presidential candidates will be come uh, the time of uh, 1800. Uh, for Jefferson, it's Aaron Burr, and for John Adams, it's uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. But we need to learn more about some other, um, about another uh player. And what I mean by player is someone who is not only just a statesman or what we call a politician, but someone who will become a nemesis, not just a nemesis, but a thorn in one of the two men's uh, sides in the uh, early years of our uh, republic's uh, existence. So uh, let's fasten our seatbelts and be prepared to learn um, more relevant information um, as we go forward in Adams versus Jefferson. So our uh, leadoff question uh, will be the following. What former Revolutionary War soldier and officer wrote a letter in September of 1788 persuading George Washington to accept the presidency? I'll give you a couple of choices. Was it choice A, Alexander Hamilton? Was it choice B, James Monroe, or was it uh, choice C, John Marshall? Well, I do know that all three of these uh, men uh, served in the American Revolutionary War, but the question is, once again, what former uh, Revolutionary War soldier and officer wrote a letter in September of 1788 persuading George Washington to accept the presidency? The answer is choice A, Alexander Hamilton. You know, I I think it's actually a very good um, logical choice that Alexander Hamilton would encourage Washington to um, accept the presidency. After all, you know, Alexander Hamilton uh, served under George Washington's command and had the utmost respect for Washington from all um, aspects. But is it fair to say that um, Hamilton himself has lots of high ambitions? Oh, absolutely. What were some of his ambitions? Well, how about wanting to be part of something large or larger? Well, is it fair to say that maybe being president of this uh, young republic one day could be on his list? It's possible. But he would rather have George Washington be the leader of our young republic. So for Alexander Hamilton, he he's okay with starting out being in the um, administration, that is Washington's administration. And where do you think he will be? Well, I know this much. Um, when our republic is first created, uh, Washington's uh, cabinet is not the cabinet that we know in today's uh, modern um, American presidency. Uh, There was no such thing as um, Secretary of Health and Human Services in uh, Washington's day. So your most common uh, departments that have been around 
since the time of, that Washington became president, the oldest ones are uh, Secretary of State, uh, Treasury, uh, just to name a, a few. Of course, we didn't have uh, the Department of Homeland Security back then, although we did have what might have been a uh, Secretary of War. So for uh, Alexander Hamilton, yes, he wants to be a part of something that's large, where he can take credit for designing something that's new. Okay, well, when I think of designing something new, does that mean uh, replacing something that's no longer uh, relevant in terms of it no longer working to uh, having a system in play that's 10 times better than what's already in existence? Yes. And 10 times better meaning that there is a greater likelihood that uh, revenue can be generated to um, help pay off um, existing debts. Yes. So what post do you think Alexander Hamilton will take? It's probably not Secretary of State. How about Secretary of Treasury? So for Alexander Hamilton, he would like to be able to design something from an economic standpoint. So yes, uh, Washington did accept Hamilton's request. Now, do you, do you think, how do you think Alexander Hamilton addressed this matter to Washington? Well, I mean, there were no telephones. We didn't have texts. There were no computers. So in other words, no email. Well, Hamilton writes him a letter. And how could Washington not turn it down? Sure, there might have been some other qualified men, but I, I personally believe that George Washington's the right man at the right time. After all, he was the presiding officer of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and you know he took it upon himself to realize that, hey, look, you know, in the aftermath of what happened at Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, if these rebellions go on where people are... Um, Everyday people are um, what we call rebels, are getting a hold of the courtrooms or the courts to where they are closing the courts uh, at their own will, so that um, a judge or the, uh, or a juryman uh, cannot um, do their uh, basic necessities. Yeah, if if ordinary people like this are are holding uh, their governments hostage, then there's going to be anarchy. So for George Washington to realize that, hey, you know, something needs to be done to replace this fledgling government being the Articles of Confederation, and if something's not done soon, then yes, the America as we know it may not exist. So it, George Washington was the right person at the right time. So yes, Alexander Hamilton sent him a letter, and Washington accepted. And with Washington accepting that post, Alexander Hamilton uh, became... Um, the Treasury Secretary, and Hamilton's relationship with Washington went as far back as uh, the winter of 1777. So, you know, think about this. About 12 years before George Washington becomes president, Hamilton and Washington um, first meet each other in the American Revolutionary War. Now, I should point out, I think it might be worth mentioning a little bit about Hamilton's um, early years. I will say that he did not have the same kind of uh, childhood like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did. 
Alexander Hamilton had to overcome a great deal in his early uh, childhood years. I do know that, unfortunately, he was uh, born as an illegitimate uh, child. Um, pardon me for using the word, but that it was used heavily in its day and time. He basically was a, a bastard child. Uh, I know that sounds harsh, but, um, but his parents were not um, married, and so therefore he was a child um, that was a, a product child that was born out of wedlock, basically. So sadly, Hamilton, um, his father really was not in the picture that much. He pretty much abandoned the family when young Alexander was eight, about eight years old. But young Hamilton himself lost uh, both of his parents by the time he was 13. So I can't imagine, um, you know, being his age, let's say I was 13 years old and I lost both of my parents, you know, where do I go? It's not like I have uh, a, a, a relative across the street who's going to take me in. Uh, we have to remember Alexander Hamilton was not born in America. He was born in, um, in the Caribbean. However, um, there are people um, who knew his parents, and there were people who were kind enough to uh, look after him. So at age 13, he finds work at a mercantile firm in uh, the Caribbean, and what do you know? This um, mercantile firm has business ties to New York. So is it possible, folks, that with this mercantile firm in the Caribbean, that, and given that it has ties to New York, that Hamilton might be able to um, embark on a new um, endeavor? Yes. At age 15, he left St. Croix for New York. And by 1772, he, enrolled, he enrolls at King's College. Now, King's College was a... There's another name for the school now. Does anybody want to take a guess? Is it uh, Hofstra? Is it uh, Columbia? Or is it um, Manhattan? The answer is uh, Columbia uh, University. Ivy League school, but back then, in, in his day, in the 1770s, it was uh, King's College. Now, by the time 1775 rolls around, Hamilton is still in school. However, he uh, makes a bold sacrifice by um, halting his studies to do what? Well, 1775, folks, when I think of uh, 1775, I think of um, the Second Continental Congress. I also uh, think of April uh, 19th of 1775, the battles at Lexington and Concord, the day sh the shots were heard round the world, meaning that the Americans had mustered up enough courage to uh, fire shots against the mighty empire. And maybe they had every right to refer to England as the evil empire in that day and time. So yes, 1775, Hamilton halts his studies to fight to join the Continental Army. He saw action at numerous uh, battles, uh, most notably uh, the New York uh, debacle um, battles. You know, most notably, not just so much New York, but uh, Harlem Heights, um, or Brooklyn Heights, I should say, um, Kipps Bay, um, Long Island, um, all of that was just a, um, a terrible um, campaign for the Continental Army. But 
Alexander Hamilton did see better days, especially when it um, when it came to that um, infamous mission on uh, Christmas night of 1776. The mission was simply titled as Victory or Death. When Washington's men, and Alexander Hamilton being a part of that um, mission, along with James Monroe, uh, joined... Um, joined up with uh, a little over a thousand men and crossed the Delaware River and pulled off the inevitable by um, routing a thousand Hessians, capturing close to a thousand of them, and killing their uh, commander, whom had no respect for the Continental Army, had been given multiple warnings uh, by uh, John Honeyman, uh, who was the, um, who was the uh, double spy, that colonel being Colonel Johann Rall. Matter of fact, he was one of the first to be shot by the uh, Continental uh, forces that um, that stormed uh, the uh, bar the Hessian barracks at Trenton. But Alexander Hamilton was part of it. He was also part of um, the victory at Princeton a few days after Trenton. Uh, those battles um, saving not only the cause for independence, but restoring morale to uh, better levels than what it had been. Uh, prior to Trenton, uh, after the New York debacle. Hamilton saw action in Pennsylvania, most notably Brandywine and Germantown. But he also saw uh, engagements at Monmouth uh, Courthouse, New Jersey, and most notably at Yorktown, Virginia, where he finally got the opportunity to be, a to be engaged in the uh, field command uh, post which led to his infantry brigade capturing a key British redoubt, or I should say a, a redoubt, another word for redoubt is like a, a stronghold a fortification. During, his during the final years of the Revolutionary War, Hamilton saw firsthand that the existing government, which was the Articles of Confederation, lacked various means, most notably when it came to generating money, Revenue. You know, in order for a government to function, folks, what is it? There are a lot of things that need to happen in order for a government to function, but one of them in particular is that government needs to have money money to pay off debts, money to uh, fund a program, money to fund uh, a military, and not just a military, but the provisions and supplies that need to go into um, to ensuring that a military can function, just to name a few of the many. Uh, responsibilities for um, generating revenue and just overall funding. Alexander Hamilton never forgot his past, where he came from, and always wanted something higher. That was really a place to belong, which was none other than in the United States, because Alexander Hamilton knew what the United States was all about. He was trying to live the American dream, but he knew that the American dream, in his eyes, pertained to that fight for independence from England and all the injustices that were bestowed upon the 13 colonies. You know, when I think of injustices, how about like that Stamp Act, taxation without representation, uh, just to name one of the many um, injustices or you know, grievances that Parliament had imposed upon her subjects. These injustices, yes, have been bestowed upon the 13 colonies leading up to July 4th of 1776, the day which America approved the document, a.k.a. the Declaration of Independence, 
and officially declared her separation from England. Well, before, Fed before the Federalists themselves emerged, and of course, when I think of Alexander Hamilton uh, from a political ideological standpoint, I always think of, you know, his grand envision for, um, you know, supporting a strong central government. But there were those um, people, there were people out there referred to as nationalists whom advocated uh, turning towards the interests of middling farmers to having uh, annual elections. So in other words, the nationalists weren't people who believed in uh, catering to the interests of the elite or uh, those who would have made up the one uh, made up one to two percent of the um, of the uh, wealthiest um, group of uh, people in in society, like those who would have made up the uh, mercantile elite. But uh, the nationalists are wanting to cater to those of the uh, middling sort, middle ground, everyday uh, middle class people. Well, here's another question for you all. By the time George Washington had officially become president, did the United States have a surplus? Think long and hard about this, folks. The answer is no. The young republic was in the red, with deficits dating back to Revolutionary War days. Remember, folks, you know, it was after the uh, victory, the American victory at Saratoga, New York, that France decided to come along and officially declare its allegiance towards the Americans. Because remember, France wanted to uh, get back at England in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War when they were forced to surrender their surrender their lands along the Ohio Territory and along the St. Lawrence River and around what we now know as present-day Detroit, Michigan. All of that had to be given to England. And you get that proclamation of 1763, which also prohibited any westward expansion past the uh, Appalachian Mountains. The British were, in, were intent on protecting all Indians um, along the western frontier in terms of um, allowing them to stay where they were at, but at the same time to keep the subjects, meaning the 13 colonies, immune from further... Um, what we call from any further um, raids that would have uh, jeopardized our national security. So yes, we have uh, deficits. I'm not. I, I'll tell you all exactly how much here momentarily, just how much debt the United States had uh, from the Revolutionary War era. But yes, France had lent us money to the to the cause. And it wasn't just money, but how about an assortment of supplies and provisions that were essential behind fighting against the strongest military power in the world? England, you know, think about this, folks. They, the French supplied us with thousands of muskets, um, you know, uh, not just muskets, but um, the other uh, materials that go into um, gunpowder, uh, musket balls, I mean, the whole nine yards. Uh, wagons that would have transported supplies from point A to point B. So, how much debt do you think the United States had from the Revolutionary War that was still outstanding? I'll give you some numbers. Uh, choice A would be 50 million. Choice B, 90 million. Or choice C, 76. The answer is choice C, $76 million. 
that you know seventy six million dollars is a lot of money to be in debt, but of course that does not compare to the debt that the United States is in today in terms of being in the trillions. But in seventy, but uh, by the time Washington is president, there is um, the, the United States is seventy six million dollars in debt. So for Alexander Hamilton, he is trying to find uh, an assortment of ways to go about. Um, doing everything there is to get out of this debt. I mean, he knows that it can't just happen overnight. But Hamilton sought to nationalize the government from a financial standpoint where broader powers would emerge, such as refinancing all foreign, national, and state debts with new securities. Does anybody know what, when I... When I, I know when we think of the word security, we think of um, like a police officer protecting... Um, protecting us, or uh, a, another word, when I think of security, how about like a security alarm device? But this is not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about here. Securities in this sense are um, like financial assets. Assets are what you um, have um, available on you that could be used to pay off an existing debt of some sort. So for Alexander Hamilton, he wants to be able to come up with new, a new security plan or, or new, secure, new security plans in general that would be aimed at replacing old um, systems that are just no longer working with new measures that are designed to do what? Generate revenue. That, and the revenue that's generated will be used to do what? To pay off existing debts. Is it fair to say that Alexander Hamilton is trying to establish something that we know today, a.k.a. the Federal Reserve? Okay, so uh, when did uh, Thomas Jefferson officially begin his new role as Secretary of State? Well, isn't it... I always thought for the longest time that when Jefferson came back from uh, France that he arrived in the nick of time to see George Washington be sworn in as president. No, uh, Washington was sworn in at the end of April 1789. Thomas Jefferson doesn't return to France until just before 1789 ends. So he doesn't even know about taking on the Secretary of State post until he actually arrives back home where a note awaits him that, hey, I'm ask, I, I, George Washington, am asking you to serve in my uh, cabinet. I'd say communication's come a long way, hasn't it, folks? I mean, can you imagine being in Jefferson's shoes? You've, you know, it's taken you, what, almost a month to get back home from France, and now all of a sudden you're, you're being asked to go up, to, uh, up, up north to New York to serve in, the, um, in uh, President Washington's administration. So Thomas Jefferson um, did not take on his role as Secretary of State until March of 1790, almost a year after uh, Washington became president. Now, who would have kept uh, Jefferson in the loop, most notably about Hamilton's government ideologies, upon um, Jefferson's actual return from France? Was it uh, James Monroe? Was it James Madison or was it um, John Jay? The answer is choice B, James Madison. James Madison is the one that's going to pretty much, uh, he's going to be the one that's going to introduce Jefferson to Alexander Hamilton. 
not person, not so much from a person-to-person -person standpoint. He's going to basically tell Jefferson in an assortment of letters, as well as in person, that, hey, this guy who is George Washington's Treasury Secretary is somebody you might want to keep an eye on. Not only will you have to work with him, but you, you know, you have differing, you have one set of uh, political views, but this man has another set, and I have a good feeling that you all are going to probably clash a lot. So James Madison is the one that has been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work, and he was definitely someone who was good at behind-the-scenes work, most notably with the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Uh, we do have Madison to thank for um, studying about past republics and why why republics at one point failed and why there were republics that managed to um, succeed even in the midst of various changes. So, and let's also keep in mind that without, um, you know, as someone once said, uh, to understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into play, and without you know, it is fair to say that without James Madison, we may not even have um, a Bill of Rights. He was the one that was very, um, many other of our uh, forefathers were adamant about a Bill of Rights, but James Madison was um, was up there in that, um, what do you call it, in that uh, upper tier uh, group of uh, men who really um, saw to it that a Bill of Rights got put into play. So uh, for James Madison, he is the one that uh, pretty much will give Jefferson everything he needs to know that will allow him to uh, keep an eye out on Hamilton and his ideals behind what is um, behind what he thinks is uh, the proper way to govern. Whereas Jefferson will see that, you know, he's got ideas that are of um, a differing uh, mode. Jefferson's presence in Washington's uh, administration from March of 1790 onward would be consumed by opposition towards any policy that resembled all things uh, tyrannical, or a.k.a. monarchy. It was after late 1790, going into 1791, would Jefferson go about pursuing an anti-Hamilton majority in Congress, that could strike down or vote against all things big government related that benefiting only the few, the wealthy, and the elite. So Jefferson does Jefferson at this point is not planning on wanting to establish a political party. He just needs to find enough people to go about instituting a majority known as the anti-Hamilton majority. For Jefferson, he is, it, you have to keep in mind that Jefferson is distrustful of big government. Jefferson wants government to be simple, but he doesn't want anything radical that could be anything like what the, um, like what America had endured for some period of time under, given all the injustices that Parliament had enacted without the consent of the colonists. That, to, for Jefferson, a government has to be one that um, provides direct consent to the colonists, to, to the people, but, but doing so in a manner that's not so intrusive. You know, I almost, as much as I love Jefferson, and I think it's fair to say that with a lot of our forefathers, yes, they had flaws. 
yes, they, they opposed certain measures or various measures. Is it fair to say that some of our forefathers may never have been satisfied with anything? Perhaps, but they were satisfied with enough to where they had respect from those around them and from, a, from enough people to where um, business was in fact done. Did Jefferson go as far as taking the initiative behind overseeing that a newspaper be set up where it pertained to attacking all things about Hamiltonian ideals? Yes, the paper became known as the National Gazette, which first appeared in the fall of 1791. Wow, so, you know, it's one thing for Jefferson to want to criticize Hamilton, now he's got a now he is overseeing that a newspaper do the same thing, not just towards Hamilton, but anybody uh, within the government who uh, shares the same ideals as Alexander Hamilton does, and just to every ordinary everyday ordinary people who might who um, are not big on uh, this um, who are not big on Hamiltonian ideals as well. However, um, Alexander Hamilton's faction. We could say the anti-Jefferson uh, majority had a newspaper of its own, being the Gazette of the United States, the newspaper that catered to Federalists, rival newspapers. So, folks, it is fair to say that even the newspapers of the day were partisan. And it is probably fair to say today that in America and elsewhere around the world that there are newspapers that cater to a certain group of uh, people, but yet... There are opposing forces who would not um, who would not want to spend the time reading a particular paper. Despite Washington having won a second term in 1792, did Jefferson's opposition movement gain congressional seats? Yes, the opposition picked up states picked up seats in all states south of the New England region. So, in other words, the um, we haven't officially called them the Democratic-Republican Party or the Anti-Federalists, or maybe Anti-Federalists, but we haven't referred to them just yet as Jeffersonian Republicans. But most notably in the middle states and in the uh, southern states, that, um, that Jefferson's uh, party are gaining uh, seats. So when we think of middle states, folks, how about, you know, Pennsylvania. How about, um, believe it or not, New York is considered a middle uh, state. Because we have to remember, folks, New England, um, New England at this time is New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, six states. Of course, we have to remember, uh, even when George Washington was president, folks, that Maine was considered to be part of Massachusetts. So keep that in mind, folks. So, yes, um, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, you know, then on, going onward south from Virginia um, down to Georgia, that there are um, members of Jefferson's um, party that are picking up seats. So from late 1788 into most of 1792, John Adams, I'm sure many of y'all were thinking, when is he, when was he going to come back up? John Adams' political nemesis had been none other than Alexander Hamilton. 
but let me ask you this. Who, between Adams and Jefferson, whom do you think would be, which of the two would have had, um, would have said that uh, Hamilton was their greater nemesis? Uh, the answer is Jefferson, more so than Adams. But that's not to say that Adams and Hamilton had, had, had uh, differences, but I don't think it was anywhere as severe as, as it was for Jefferson and Hamilton. So Adams pretty much viewed Hamilton, in my opinion, Adams viewed Hamilton as a puppet. In other words, Adams saw Hamilton as one whom was a bit of a control freak, one whom felt it was necessary to dictate orders to those above, and expect them to be carried out without going through the proper channels of communication. Well, after all, didn't Alexander Hamilton write a letter to George Washington requesting that he be president? Yes, but that was probably at a different time because I don't, I'm not sure who else might have written the letter. It's I could say that John Adams might have written Washington a letter saying, hey, I think this is something you should do. I'm sure even James Madison or John Jay might have. But Hamilton, given that he had served in the war with uh, George Washington and knew him so well, Hamilton took the initiative to, um, to uh, go out of his way and say, hey, you know, this country owes you a, a, um, a debt of gratitude. Um, but you but you still have so much more left to do so i say you uh take this um the uh, position of the presidency but at the same time hamilton you know hamilton's a powerful man not just so much that he's a treasury secretary but but remember he was craving for something big and sometimes when we crave for something big we have to make sure that there are boundaries as well because sometimes we're not going to always be able to get everything it is that we want so I'm beginning to wonder for Alexander Hamilton, yes, here he is going around dictating orders like he, as if he were the actual commander-in-chief, but yet is he doing all this with, with any um, proper thought of uh, boundaries? Maybe not. Do you think they could come back and get him somewhere down the road? Oh, I think it's possible. I mean, no matter how big or small the stakes are, I mean, anything is possible, but Yes, I, this is something that irks John Adams uh, a great deal. He, he, you know, he knows that Hamilton has a powerful post, but just because you have a powerful post, it doesn't mean that you automatically have the right to dictate orders to those above you when there has not been a proper channel of communication that has already uh, taken place. Prior, however, though, prior to 1792's end, there were men whom sought to remove John Adams from the vice presidential post and replace him with George Clinton, seven-term governor from New York. However, though, Alexander Hamilton did not like what was going on and came through by coming to Adams' defense and telling the skeptics all the good that John Adams had brought, most notably his remarkable career of service to the nation, including his, you know, including his personal love of the of America, Hamilton basically saw John Adams as one whom put the nation's interests above, above all personal or what we call partisan politics. But what do you know, folks? John Adams, uh, 
through the eight years that he was Washington's vice president, he never got to sit in on an actual meeting. Matter of fact, Adams was the one that even said that the vice presidency post was one of the loneliest positions. But nonetheless, it was very nice of Alexander Hamilton to come to John Adams' defense and say, hey, you know, replacing him won't solve the problem, but the way you're also trying to do it is also dirty. But you know what? Is it fair to say that even um, when the time George Washington became president, going onward, even to this day, that politics is dirty? Yes, it is. Doesn't make it right, but sadly it is. Now, when George Washington um, won re-election in 1792, he he did so without facing oppos without facing any opposition. However. There are um, problems overseas, most notably um, turmoil in Europe, and that turmoil is um, in France, a.k.a. the French Revolution. Uh, for those of you who were with me uh, from the last podcast segment, uh, Harlow Giles Unger's Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. Well, let's revisit some stuff here. You know, the French Revolution... Um, is a very, um, how do you call it? Yes, some people could say revolutions are exciting, but to me, a revolution is not exciting when um, when people whom are leading the movement don't have a solid plan in place to where they are willing to work with people from all, um, from all corners. In other words, yes, there were people who had been oppressed for years, whom pretty much were not allowed to have any say in their government, and yes, felt as though they were not valued. However, just because you remove your leader and his wife and family, and, and, and the uh, leader and his wife are executed, does that automatically mean that um, people are going to come together automatically and work for the common good? No. Maybe one sector of society might, but if that one sector of society uh, doesn't um, doesn't do its part in ensuring that bridges don't get burned with those whom um, whom worked um, in the middle, then how can you expect um, how can you expect to achieve um, success, not just short term but long term? So. Basically, uh, in the aftermath of King Louis XVI and his wife, uh, Queen Marie Antoinette, getting executed, uh, Louis uh, got executed six weeks prior to Washington's second inauguration. So if that was bad enough, Britain and France by 1793 are at war. Not only just at war, but they're at war with each other. And both nations are desperate to get the United States involved. The only problem, though, is that who would the United States want to side with? Does Washington even want to go to war? And the bigger thing is, too, does Washington even have an army that he's willing to risk sending 3,000 miles across the ocean to um, get involved in something that really, for one, that we have no ties to, and two, if we do get involved, how will it impact the other side, whom we're not siding with, and two, what do we expect to get out of the conflict when it's all said and done with? 
Washington issues a, a, a decree or what I might say a proclamation of neutrality. We're not going to take either nation's side, England or France. We're going to stay neutral, folks. We're going to stay out of this. So there are those whom actually supported what Washington did, and there are others whom uh, did not like it, but that's also the way it is. You know, you're not going to be able to please everybody. But in 1793, a new political party organization took center stage by originating in Philadelphia, the Democratic Republican Society, whose members consisted of small merchants, editors, tradesmen. Small merchants, kind of like those who represent small businesses, editors. Do you think this is something that uh, Thomas Jefferson um, likes? Absolutely. After all, this uh, new uh, party organization, being that of the Democratic Republican Society, is um, seeking for, is wanting to seek out a government that was not linked to anything resembling a monarchy. The society's members were inspired by the movement in France, most notably the overthrow of king and queen. Well, you know, you can be inspired by something, but it doesn't mean that it's always for the better. Did most Americans support Washington's proclamation behind neutrality involving war between France and England? Yes. Although many in America had appreciated what France had done from an ally perspective during the American Revolutionary War, times had changed, however, since the American Revolutionary War ended, given that the uh, current situation in France after the King and Queen's executions did not lead to a peaceful transition of power. And a lot of that was due to the level of extremism that was still playing out. You had one group of people that were radicals, or what we would call the Jacobins, uh, named after the leader uh, Jacob, named after uh, Jacob Francois Robespierre. I believe that, I, I know the last name was Robespierre. He was mentioned from the uh, previous book series we did. But these uh, radicals wanted power all to themselves. They had been oppressed for years and were very distrustful of anybody else whom had assumed power before them, uh, most notably uh, power like that of the nobles, or those of the uh, nobility, the gentry status, and even the clergy. Remember, folks, uh, France is heavily Catholic. So what does that mean? Catholic church, land, natural resources, not just the land that's above, but controlling the resources that lie below the, um, the surface that lie below the land surface. So for these uh, Jacobins, they also don't like those who are moderate. You know, wasn't Thomas Paine a moderate? Wasn't Thomas Paine wanting to uh, find resolution without needing to uh, execute the um, king and queen and, his fa and the family? Yes. Even Thomas Paine himself was jailed. If it hadn't been for James Monroe becoming minister to, uh, or ambassador to France when he had, uh, Thomas Paine might have been executed. So the Jacobins don't like the moderates, and all moderates are either jailed, like Thomas Paine was, or they were executed. Dangerous times, to say the least. 
Now, what happened to Thomas Jefferson come December of 1793 at the very end? He resigned from Washington's cabinet and returned to Monticello. He got burnt out. But I think it's probably fair to say that he probably got burnt out over the fact that he just got fed up in dealing with Alexander Hamilton. I think Jefferson pretty much wants a break from politics, but even better yet, he might want to want to be uh, retired from politics altogether because his greatest joys were um, outside of the political realm. Did Alexander Hamilton stay? Did, I mean, did Alexander Hamilton stay on as Treasury Secretary after Jefferson stepped down from his post? Yes, he did. But prior to and shortly after Jefferson's departure, a crisis was emerging along Pennsylvania's western frontier, the counties near uh, Pittsburgh, most notably like Fayette and uh, Bedford County, um, areas uh, outside of Pittsburgh like uh, Uniontown, uh, Monongahela. A crisis emerged. Does anybody want to take a guess at which one this would have been? It didn't happen just overnight, but it had, was something that had been coming for a while. How about the Whiskey Rebellion along the Pennsylvania western frontier outside of, uh, present, outside of uh, Pittsburgh? Many of the frontiersmen, or not just many, all of them, were hit hard by Hamilton's whiskey excise tax. And, and, uh, and they were hit hard because these frontiersmen, men produced what was called corn whiskey and it wasn't being consumed so much for their own uh, personal good i mean yes they were consuming a certain amount for their own good but the majority of it was being exported to eastern markets when i think of eastern markets how about like philadelphia new york i don't know about boston but i do know most notably philadelphia and new york and maybe baltimore as well and for these uh, frontiersmen, this is their pretty much their primary source of income, you know, making um, corn whiskey. But the problem, though, in their eyes is that this um, tax, yes, the tax itself is intended to, um, intended to collect money. So in other words, it was a measure enacted to reduce the national debt from the Revolutionary War era because the government is in desperate need of money. And, and the government does have a right to tax. I mean, they have um, advised the people below, the, the constituents, that, hey, there is going to be a tax imposed, so there has been consent. But the problem is that people in the western parts of uh, Pennsylvania feel as though they, their rights are being infringed upon. Farmers in western Pennsylvania refused to abide by the law, largely in part because they found, they found it hard to profit off of their goods, given they didn't feel highly valued from those above in the government, including the port cities where the interests benefited the elite. So is it fair to say in the eyes of the, of the western Pennsylvania farmers that the profits that the profits being reaped from the goods they have produced, most notably like corn whiskey, where, it, where that commodity is being delivered to, those people are going to benefit higher 
than those in western Pennsylvania. So basically, for the farmers, they feel that they're being stabbed in the back. They feel as though they're being used, taken advantage of. And the last thing they don't want to have in their territory, or in their neck of the woods, I should say, would be who? Tax collectors. You know, customs collectors were despised uh, during the American Revolutionary War, and here we are not long after the American Revolutionary War, where tax collectors are being despised in a particular uh, region, though, most notably uh, along the frontiers of uh, western Pennsylvania. Tax collectors made multiple attempts behind collecting revenues from the frontier farmers, only to be violently driven away, as well as getting tarred and feathered. Well, that tarring and feathering hasn't gone away. However, uh, George Washington decided that he, that something needed to be done because this what was going on in western Pennsylvania was a threat to national security. Washington himself, including thousands of militiamen forces, go into western Pennsylvania and were ultimately able to help defuse the crisis along the frontier. A couple of men were tried for treason. A vast majority of men were pardoned for their actions. Thank heavens a crisis was averted, but after the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794 had been suppressed, did Alexander Hamilton step down from the post of Treasury Secretary? Yes. He went about turning his focus on writing essays defending the actions regarding the Whiskey Rebellion to everything else he had done and ensuring that Washington's policy stood firm despite opposition by the Je by Jefferson faction. What treaty, or I should say treaty agreement, did Alexander Hamilton help set up, or I should say get started, prior to stepping down from Treasury Secretary Post? You know, what's a treaty, folks? It's another word for agreement. A treaty, it's an accord where... Um, where it has to involve more than one nation. And it has to, um, and, and which body of Congress approves the treaties? Is it the House of Representatives or the United States Senate? The United States Senate. Can a president be involved in, um, in treaty negotiations? Yes, the president can be involved, but usually um, it's a Secretary of State that... Um, that oversees um, the uh, process, but a president of the United States himself can um, can certainly approve of a treaty. But yes, the Senate is the body that approves all uh, treaties. So what treaty agreement did Alexander Ham Hamilton help set up prior to um, stepping down from the Treasury Secretary, from, uh, from being that of a Treasury Secretary? It was the Jay Treaty, named for John Jay, whom at the time was serving as America's first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And for those of you who want to know where John Jay hails from, he uh, hails from uh, New York. What exactly uh, does this uh, treaty accomplish? Well, it accomplished a handful of things, but, um, but given uh, for time constraint and all that, I will mention a few things that um, are important. The Jay Treaty resolved all outstanding issues from the American Revolutionary War since the 1783 Treaty of Paris. The U.S. and Britain engaged in agreements leading to preventing war with both nations and promoting a 10-year era 
or I should say promoting a long era of safe commercial trading between the two nations, one that would pretty much last for 10 years. But what I found interesting was that um, if I had to find one primary objective that was achieved under the Jay Treaty, it had to do with uh, re the removal of British Army units from forts, or I should say posts, in the Northwest Territory, along with those on the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain regions. Uh, Lake Champlain, folks, that's uh, in uh, New York State. Um, in uh, Champlain, New York, it also uh, borders into Vermont. So is it fair to say that with that the British are finally agreeing to uh, leave um, the uh, to remove um, army units from uh, the forts in the Northwest Territory. You know, think about areas like we know now as like present-day Toledo, Ohio, uh, an area like around present-day Detroit, Michigan. So by removing these, um, by having British army units removed from these posts, this will help ensure that um, that Americans can do what, folks. Britain, well, Britain's removal of military forces along the Northwest Territory will enable the doors to become bigger for further westward expansion into the area, into the, into the territories that will eventually become states like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and eventually Michigan and Wisconsin. Well, right before we wrap this up, we have one more question to address. How old was George Washington come February of 1796? I'll give you a number. He's between the age of uh, 60 and 65. The answer is 64. Remember, he was born in 1732, so by February of 1796, he is uh, 64 years of age. What did he do in February of 1796 that, that, is, that was important? Well, it was during that month that uh, Washington himself confided privately with Alexander Hamilton by advising that he would not run for a third term. So basically, folks, um, Alexander Hamilton was the first to be advised by George Washington that come um, election time in seven that come the time of election in 1796 that he was not going to be running, that he that his time had already. Um, ended and that he wanted to retire from politics altogether and enjoy his remaining years at his beloved uh, estate of Mount Vernon. found it interesting that, you know, he didn't uh, mention this to John Adams, but of course at some point John Adams will know, but at the same time, given that George Washington, um, given his stature and rank in society, I think it's fair to say that even Washington himself knows that maybe it's best not always to tell everything to everybody right away, but only to a select per, to a select group of men that I find to be of uh, trust, whom I can confide in and are seen as trustworthy individuals who will not uh, gossip. Yes, I will tell other people, but I will know when it's the right time to do so. Well, that is it for uh, this uh, podcast segment of Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. I look forward to being back on the air again next time with all of you, my uh, fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Thank you for your support as always. And um, wherever you all may live in the world, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, stay safe.
Take care for now and uh, good evening.